0: Listen, it's this week and next week, okay? We, we're going to finish strong. Uh, I wish I could say that the people of Israel finished strong, but as uh, people have prayed this morning, I've just been reminded of God's goodness and his faithfulness, uh, but I also don't want to look past that just because we say and proclaim that God is faithful and he is good and he is loving and he's pursuing, what do we do with all of the mess that we've read through? Like, as it, funny as we've kind of joked about when his judges ended, I think there's some things that we've, we've heard and we ask the questions of God, how are you faithful in all of this? How can God be good when what we saw in Judges 19 was absolutely horrific last week in our text? Like, how, how do we wrestle through that? And so, just as a disclaimer, being not another Sunday service, but being a church that says we want to wrestle through these things together. You have time and space to do that. As your under-shepherd, I am not the chief shepherd. I am not Jesus. He is our CEO of our church. He is the chief shepherd. But as your under-shepherd, I want to walk through that stuff with you. Those questions that, that linger in your hearts and your souls of how and why, man, don't, don't walk through that alone. Don't walk through that and feel like you have to even pretend that you know all the answers. It's the time and space to work through any of those things that you're wrestling through. Shoot me an email, questions, work that, through that stuff with your group. And everybody look at me. You don't have to have all the answers. There are many a things in our faith that we don't have all the answers to. The father actually just wants his children to be, to be needy. And some of the hardest things for me to do is to actually be needy and say, I need some help. And if that's you, I want to walk through that stuff with you. So that's just a intro to the intro this morning. I want to just put that out there because uh, as we get into our text, it's not going to be another easy one as well. So let's jump into that. Um, Israel seems united in chapter 20 for the first time really since chapter three. And we can see, we didn't do our scripture reading this morning because we were going to pray and have our commissioning. So I'm going to just walk through the story, have your word open. Some of it will be on the screen. Uh, But we can see Israel seems to be united for the first time, really, since chapter 3. The community assembled as one body before the Lord. But verse 8, all the people, they stood united. This, This is speaking on behalf of what just took place in chapter 19. A horrific thing. Concubine is assaulted murdered, chopped up, sent out to the, the, the 12 tribes and basically just said, hey, this is what's happened to this and, and what are we going to do about it? And so the Levite sends the body out. What are we going to do? And here we are. They're united against a horrific crime. Verse 8, all the people stood. The leaders of all the tribes presented themselves in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 soldiers. And what has united them? They asked the Levite to recount what had taken place. Again, the horrific stuff that had just taken place. Tell us, how did this evil act happen, is what they said. We want to hear from you. So he tells them what took place with his concubine in Gibeah amongst the tribe of Benjamin. She was assaulted, murdered, cut up, as I said, sent out to all the tribes. Wicked outrage is what it's called. And in verse 7, the Levite looks at all the leaders and he basically says, What are you gonna do about it? What are we gonna do about this? And all the people stood united. Verse 9 and 10 what is happening is they are rallying the troops and they're preparing for a civil war. Now, to be really clear, the tribes are rallying their troops against a tribe who's not present. the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, who committed the horrific crimes, who are Israelites. Yeah. My, have we come so far since the Canaanites in chapter 1. We now have 11 of the 12 tribes rallying the troops to go against the tribe of Benjamin. This is now civil war. That's what we're facing here. It's us versus them. Scripture says they prepared to punish them for all the outrage they committed in Israel. A sense of, hey, let's give them what they deserve. Verse 12 through 14, as they arrive in Gibeah, they give the people of Benjamin a chance to respond. So they're rallied, the troops, they're saying, let's go. They show up and they get, they're they giving the tribe of Benjamin, to take ownership for what has happened. They say, what is this evil act that has happened among you? Hand over the wicked men so we can put them to death and eradicate, eradicate evil from Israel. They should have just driven out the Canaanites like God asked them to do. And now it's a civil war and they're trying to eradicate evil, not from the Canaanites, from their own people of Israel. Israel has gathered to purge the evil, to get rid of the evil practices that have occurred in their family of families, phrase that we use here. Like this seems good, it seems right, let's hold people accountable for their actions. The problem, however, is they're not met with humility. Instead, they're met with an outrage and it creates more problems than... Um, It solves. We see the Benjaminites, that is a hard word to say, Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. So gathered together, as we see in Scripture, from their cities to Gibeah to go out and to fight against the Israelites. Now what we have is the civil war. It's not us versus them. It's Israel versus Israel. Couple of things that stand out in the story as we kind of continue on and, and look to conclude next week. The first is simple. Like, why didn't they just turn over the guilty men? Why, why didn't the Benjaminites just turn over the guilty men and say, you know what, you're right? It was an outrage. And we're accountable for this. We're gonna turn them over. Somebody will pay for this. They could have just owned it. They could have just taken responsibility for what took place within their own tribe, and they could have owned it. Phrase we use in our house. When you mess up, Deacon, what do you do? And then Ellie, when you mess up, you man up and you move on. That's what, that's what I try to teach our kids. Like, it's okay that you mess up. I'm not asking you to be perfect, but when you mess up, hey, let's man up. Let's, let's own what we have done, and then together, let's move on but there's something deeper here that has taken place. We've covered a lot of idols along the way, a lot of picking apart our hearts and thinking about the things that drive us, our comfort, our control, our approval of man. We've done a lot of heart work, heart surgery along the way through Judges, but there's something that we haven't covered as far as an idol, and it's a very destructive idol, and it disrupts the unity of God's people. It's the idol of our own tribe. I, I can't think outside of Judges and, and other historical texts, I can't think of another time um, that we're living in because we're all living and experiencing a tension right now where it is this idol of our own tribe. My family, my country... Right or wrong, rain, sleet, or snow, it's, it's us. It's me. And clearly, y'all, these men have violated not just God's law, but really any common variety of morality. These men have gone against the horrific actions to the concubine. But pride has consumed the hearts of the people of Benjamin. And the idol of their own tribe, Refuse to let any outsider find fault with those on the inside. They had the chance. Mess up, man up, move on. But they're, no, 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 no. No outsider, which the irony is they're all insiders. It's a family of families. But to them, pride has so blinded them, they're saying, no, no, no. No outsider is going to come in and do anything to us. Man, we are a tribe. We are united. We are in this. Pride's consumed the hearts of the people of Benjamin. Keller says, when we put our blood or racial ties or community above the common good and the transcendent moral order, we make a God of our own people. I'm so glad that as we head into an election year that we don't find any of these issues in our nation right now. In our state, I'm so glad that we don't find any division amongst the Big C Capital C Church in our nation right now. Like, right, like I say that obviously with a sarc- sarcastic heart. Like, obviously, we look around and, and we see, we see this. We we see what's taken place right now. It is our tribe verse. Your tribe. It is whatever whoever believes us or says the things that we want to hold true and cling to, even if it's not biblical principle. By gosh, we agree with those people, and this is us, and this is our country, and, man, we will go to war against God's creation. Other people, other Christians. Well, you don't know what they said on Facebook. They, they, they like the chosen. They don't like the revivals that are taking place. Like I could go, there are so many things. month of fasting is going to be glorious. Get rid of your social media for a month and just breathe in God's goodness. There are so many things that are doing this, just separating us, causing disunity, not just within our nation. I'm talking about Big C Church. Family, sin has continued to build in the lives of God's people, generation after generation. Idols continue to go unchecked, and as we see here, there's not a heart of repentance. In fact, their hearts have, have grown calloused to God. Not only to God, now to one another, to the point where they're not fighting sin, they are fighting each other. I want us to, I want us to see this picture this morning. They... I've said this over a lot of, throughout the last 20, 21 weeks. They were supposed to drive out the idols of the land.' go back to judges one. That was what God told them to do. The false gods, they were supposed to drive out. That's what God asked them to do to purge the land, if you will, of false gods. But they refused to stop flirting with the ways of culture. They made compromise after compromise, grew complacent with living the way of life with God and little G-gods. Like that's, I think, even, that's the lukewarm definition. You live with the gods of the culture and you proclaim God of the heavens. And there can't be this intermingling of souls You're either all in or you're all out. This ride the fence thing is not what we've been called into. It's not what they were called into. Purge the evil desires of the land. They grew complacent with living a way of life with God and gods. They can't see clearly, and now they're entering the civil war. Israel versus Israel. I want you to hear me on this. The call is not to purge people. I'm not standing up here saying, get rid of people. I'm saying the call's not to purge people. The call is to purge practices. The things in our life that we will continue to bow down to. These people, the Israelites, our ancestors, thought the call was to purge people, their own people. They were so duped and convinced and complacent that they resorted to, I guess we just got to get rid of the tribe of Benjamin. I guess we got to do that. The call was to purge the practices, the idols of the land. Paul says in Ephesians, thinking about this, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, finally, be strengthened by the, by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Not of man, the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist the, the evil, resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. The idol of their own tribe had blinded them from seeing God's own people. The practice of bowing down to the idols of the land had just convinced them that their struggle was against flesh and blood, not the schemes of the devil. But the Father... Of lies is really good at what he does. And when you just open that door and just start flirting with those idols, and you just kind of just let the culture just seep in and it's okay, everybody do you, you do you, everybody's happy. We're just gonna do when you just crack that door open, at some point the door is gonna just be kicked down and the father of lies, you're gonna look up, and we're just gonna be like, How are we so duped? How did we how did we miss this? Because the door's cracked, and you become complacent. You like the fresh breeze that comes in through the door and you just leave that door cracked just enough. May this be a reminder to each of us. The church ought to be a place where the only common ground that matters is the grace found at the foot of the cross. Not your tribe, not your race, ethnicity, not your social status, not how many friends you have or don't have on social media. The church... Brothers and sisters, family bought with the precious blood of Christ, it ought to be the place where the only common ground that matters is the grace found at the foot of the cross. And if we will start there, then we can see clearly the idols of control, comfort, approval, and yes, even our own tribe. And those idols will begin to crumble at the feet of Jesus. May we learn to purge the evil practices and not the people. Now, I know you might hear that and think, purge the people. Well, of course, none of us are just going to go out and just start purging people. That would be terrible. I'd end up in prison. Yeah, but think about how you treat people who think differently than you, vote differently than you, choose to, to do things differently than you. Purge the practices, not the people. And as we learn from our texts, they go to war. Kind of just briefly walk through. Benjamin has 26,000 men. That 26,000 ready to go. The Israelites, apart from Benjamin, obviously, they mobilized 400,000 men ready to go. They're all experienced warriors, but what's interesting here is Benjamin lived in the hills, so they were favored because of their defense mechanisms. There was only a few options for them to attack. So though Israel had more troops, 400,000, verse 26,000, they were only able to send in a few tribes at a time. It was a narrow space for fighting. And before they go, I want you to see this. Like a last minute, oh yeah, maybe we should check with God first. You see that in verse 18. They're set to go to war. Like there's not a question of should we. They're set to go. They inquired of God interestingly here, not Yahweh, just the God that they're going to call upon. Who is to go first to fight for us against the Benjaminites? Not, should we do this? Nonetheless, God answers, which is interesting too, and he tells them Judah. They go out, and we see the first attempt is a loss. The Benjaminites slaughtered 22,000 men, The Israelites, though, are like, hey, we can go back. Let's do this again. They went back to the Lord. They wept. They seemed genuine here. A little more humility. They just got slaughtered. They didn't choose humility. And they ask, should we again attack our brothers? God responds, fight against them. Simple response, just Yes, fight against them. So they go. The Benjaminites slaughtered an additional 18,000 men, humbled yet again. I love how Keller draws this section of our passage together. He says, on both days, God answers their question about who to send and whether to fight. However, these are no longer guarantees of success as they were in the past. God is saying, go, but I will not go with you. This is a humbling experience For Israel, like think back to a few weeks ago, better to be humble than to be humbled. They are being humbled yet again. And Keller goes on and he says, they were so convinced of the rightness of their cause. Come at me in my tribe. They were so convinced the rightness of their cause that at first they did not ask God whether to fight, merely who should fight. And their question in verse 23 does not really allow for an answer of no. No. Now, after their second reverse, they weep, hear this, and fast in sacrifice through the high priest, how it was intended. And they humbly ask whether or not they should fight their brothers again. They are, for these few verses, living as Israel should. And as we see, the Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Now, we're not God. I can't perceive what God was thinking. I can't perceive how broken God was as he watched his children fight his children. Like, I, I can't imagine the things. I'm not supposed to. Not, I, I can't put myself in those shoes. But I just got to wonder, like, what is happening right now? As we see what takes place, God grants them the victory. All but about 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin are destroyed. Case closed, war's over, God was faithful to his word, left 600 men so the tribe's not wiped out. But what happens next? An act of bitterness, similar to what we saw with Samson earlier on. Defeating them was not enough. It's no longer uh, justice, it's genocide. Like, no longer is it enough that God was with them, provided them the victory. Remember, the whole thing right now is God's trying to divorce us, divorce them from their idols. And it, man, it it has got to be hard for God to be be on doing his sovereign work. Defeating them was not enough. It's no longer justice. It's genocide. Bitterness is what is flowing from the hearts of God's people but they wept, they humbled themselves, they sacrificed, they asked for God's provision. God provides, and in their own hearts, it's not enough. Bitterness has seeped in, and the only way to fight bitterness is through forgiveness. And I'll talk a lot more about that as we wrap up Judges next week. It's a whole other thing that that as we close it out, I'll talk about that bitterness and what that does to us and how that was the driving force, not justice. It was genocide. It was, hey, thanks, God, for getting us here. We've got it from here. What I want to draw our attention to these next few moments is something I don't want us to miss this entire series. Along the way, we've talked a lot about the better way. Like, I've I've just kind of used that phrase. It's not something I came up with, but just this sense of, like, there's a better way. Why we have God's word. It's hard. It's difficult to understand. The cross is coming. The grave is empty. We have the better way. But what can we learn from the cycle in Judges? We don't have to live like they were living. Just put that uh, cycle up on the screen, if you can. This is the, nope, the other one, the first one. The old Judges cycle. Don't have it? Okay. It's, no, it's good. Y'all remember, if you have your booklet, there's a cycle. It's like this. Maybe it would be helpful to have it, but um, <laughs> it's a circle. It's a cycle. Um, oh, that's funny. I think a lot of us uh, in our lives think about our lives like this, that this is, this is the way our life will always be. I am going to wait. This one right here. Like, I think when we think about our lives God steps in and delivers. There's peace in our life. Then we rebel. God might punish us. He might convict us. I like the word convict because I think that on this side of the cross, conviction, repentance, we have the better way. It's Jesus. So God, God convicts us. Israel cries out. And so there's repentance. If you think about the life cycle for us, as you think, and then God has mercy and he, he, he blesses us or he uses us into a new season, The judge delivers, God delivers us. And and I think where we get stuck is this right here, in this this area of repentance. I think we think that that's just, now I could say that all of life is repentance, and I will always say that because I think that's true. Keep short sin accounts, all of life is repentance. But I think for most of us, we look at the Christian life as this, just kind of boring cycle that, oh, I'm just, I'm just always doing this, and I'm always uh, not living up to what God has for us. Maybe we have some good moments, but then we get caught up in our sin. We halfway feel guilty, which really we're just feeling shame, like, ah, man, I'm still stuck in this. So what do we do? Where we get stuck is we just try to live better lives. We try to just do more and earn more, almost a ladder of like, if I can just do more for God, I can climb up this ladder, and then maybe I can break out of this cycle. I think that's the way a lot of us look at our life as a believer. Man, here we go again. Just here we go again, the same cycle. I want to help us shift our view from this cycle. To actually view the life of a believer as spiritual formation. Word we use a lot. Like if you are a Christian, the call is to be an apprentice. Somebody who is a disciple of Jesus. The way of Christ. The better way you as a Christian is to follow the way of Jesus. And this formation is cyclical. Yes, it is. But it's not the same pattern where you just get stuck. And you're just in the same little cycle like the the judges for 21 chapters of the Bible. We have that cycle. John Mark Comer says, spiritual formation is learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then to do as he did. And so what has been helpful for me recently? This journey that God has taken me on, I have lived my life in that first cycle. I've, I've lived it where I just... I'm really not repenting. I'm just kind of, there's some shame there. And I don't really know what to do with my feeling of shame. And so what do I do to not feel shame? I'm going to work harder. So maybe God will think that I'm a better Christian. And so I get stuck in that cycle. But what's been helpful for me is this journey through uh, what an organization here in Aledo called the Eden Project. I went on this retreat last week uh, a minute, or two weeks ago. And it was just super helpful to see this as my spiritual life, this next picture. Okay, still a cycle, but I want us to walk through. But you're, this is heavy application today because I think, I think what will be helpful is that we don't get stuck like the people of Judges and to think, man, what does spiritual formation look like for us? And so orientation, all right, this is, this is I'll explain all of these. There's three words, orientation. Then you go through in your life some, some disorientation. I'll explain that, but then you're reoriented. But what I want you to see about spiritual formation, your walk with Jesus, is look at these loops. See how they get smaller and smaller? When you get stuck in the judges' cycle, your loop gets larger and larger because you don't know where to turn. You don't know how to get out until so you just dig, and you dig, and you dig, and you wake up one day, and you're like, man, I just keep digging. You, you, we don't get to the reorientation. And so I'm going to use my notes here. Let me define these words and then walk through the judge's story of what could be different. Orientation. This is a time in your life when you are securely oriented with who you are and who God is. Like a spiritual beginning. So for you, Christian, brother and sister, orientation would be, ah, yes, there's this new awakening in my life. I'm securely oriented to who God is and who I am. It's this aha moment in your life. Examples, coming to faith. Maybe you get a fresh start in your life. Maybe you are not. You didn't just become a Christian, but you're three cycles over, and you're, God gives you a new fresh start, a new fresh awakening. You're experiencing God's grace and his blessings to you, a fresh awareness of God's presence. That would be orientation. If you think about biblical example, if you're like, well, what, where does this? Well, think about the stage in Israel's history when they were delivered from the hands of their oppressors. Out of the hands of Pharaoh, God orients them to himself, and their only response is, wow, this is unbelievable. Look what God has done for us. They've been oriented to God. Does that make sense? You you tracking with me on this? Like this orientation, this aha moment, fresh awakening. If you think about the judges' cycle, we see that a little bit, even in our text today, a fresh awakening for them. Oh, yeah, God has provided We should run to him right now and ask him this stuff. They had this orientation. Why have we not done this more often? And so they run, as we saw in our text, to God. They fast, they pray, this orientation of who they are. And so it's an awakening to, when you're oriented, it's an awakening to desire for more of God. You're being oriented back to him. You want more of who God is. You want to just be with God. Deeper sense of of being rooted in his word. United to Christ. You don't want to pretend anymore when you're oriented. When you know who you are and who God is. You're just like, this is who I am. I, I, I I don't want to pretend anymore. You're not defending yourself. You just want to live in the freedom that he's invited you into. It's a beautiful time when you're oriented. But... Life doesn't stay that way, right? Like if you think, if you've been a Christian 30 years now for me, which is wild to think about, some of y'all have been a Christian for 45 years, some of y'all have been a Christian for one year. If you think about that, I think we would all agree, life doesn't just stay in that. You're never going to just stay oriented because we live in a Genesis 3 world where the fall, we're broken. But the second part of this cycle would be a season of disorientation. And this is where I think we get stuck. We feel distant. We feel cold towards God. We experience some sort of season of of pain, spiritual struggles, doubts, skepticism, some sort of crisis in our life. Maybe even some dark nights within our soul, like where you're just like in turmoil, you feel like David in the Psalms crying out, where are you, God? And I think a lot of us hit those moments of disorientation, and we don't know what to do. We don't even know how to put words to our own feelings in those moments. Again, think about a biblical example, if you think about Israel and they were oriented back to God they were freed from their oppressors now think about Israel being delivered they've moved from God is ever so present to them with them now they're wrestling with what in the wilderness with doubt skepticism god where are you why have you turned your back on us because they're wandering in the wilderness they're disoriented if you think about our judges cycle this is where they stayed at a complete disorientation. They can't get out of the cycle because they refuse to be divorced from the idols of their hearts. And so the invitation here is, is for us to experience compassion from Jesus. In the moments of disorientation, when your life is not a calm sea, but a roaring thunder and clouds and turmoil and storm and you've been rocked from every which direction the invitation for us in disorientation is to just press into Jesus not to run from it he knows what you're going through press in to him to pray the psalms to actually know that God has given you him his spirit and his word and you can pray the word of God back to him because he knows how you feel to be open and honest with a God who can handle all of your thoughts and your fears and your skepticism and your doubts and all of your disorientation, you can go to God. As Paul says, to take off and to put on. Every day, there's this invitation in the midst of your disorientation to take off your old self and to put on your new self and to be reminded that I'm, oh yeah, 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 I gotta crucify my flesh. God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. I feel very disoriented. I feel distant from you. And to run to him. To run to him, not away from him. From him. And some of y'all are like, yeah, no, that sounds great, but I still feel stuck. Yes, because you're hitting a wall. I, I don't know how long I've hit a wall in my own life. Wall is characterized, this wall that you hit and run into by pain and disappointment, could be from your, a life transition that you didn't ask for, but that God put in your life. Could be an internal struggle, could be external trauma that you have endured. You keep hitting the wall in all of this disorientation and you feel stuck. There's no real emotional attraction to God. It's in this disorientation that that can actually result in this disillusionment and disillusionment and unhealthy coping mechanisms. Like where you don't run to God, you're so tired of hitting the wall that you run to other things. You run away from God and you run towards your idols. And that is what we've seen over and over again in the Judges' cycle. But for me, like I said, this is all fresh for me. For me, I've learned that there is a way out of hitting the wall in your disorientation. And it's learning to just surrender yourselves to the one who knows you best. Like, the intimacy that the Father desires for us is compared to marriage. I don't need to go into the intimacy you experience in your marriage as husband and wife, but it's also the same intimacy that the Father wants with you. And that's scary. That is a vulnerable place to be. Intimacy is scary. And the way out is actually just surrendering surrendering yourself to the one who is love. And when we can learn to do that, we're basically learning to surrender to the work that the Spirit wants to do in your lives. I don't know how you're going to do this. I am tired of hitting this wall. I know that there's a better way. I believe that there's a better way, but God, I don't see the better way, and I'm surrendering myself to you. Whatever you want to do with me, like that's a scary prayer to pray. Whatever you want to do with me, Spirit, I surrender to you. It is a very Bold and scary prayer to pray. But the way out of the wall and the better way is to do that. If you think about John 15 where Jesus is talking about I am the vine, you are the branches. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. That's painful. That's disorienting. When God removes a branch from you, when God prunes the things in your life. Maybe he takes away, maybe he adds a pain to your life, whatever it is. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit. Why? So that it will produce more fruit. You don't have to stay in disorientation. The way out is to fully surrender yourself to the Lord. Why? Because the goal of that pruning and that disorientation is so that you would produce more fruit fruit as you come out of that process you enter in and I'll close with this with reorientation you come out of it you realize your identity again you quit banging your head on the wall and man I can speak on this because I've been I've got a lot of loops in my life of disorientation some that I didn't even know were there Some that I've had to go back and think, yeah, losing my house at 18 and everything I had ever owned to a house fire was very disorienting, and I've never really thought about that. I didn't really think about how angry I was at God. I didn't really think that when that happened, I transferred schools and lost everything I had worked for, all the things I wanted to do, and moved closer to my parents to help. Like, I didn't think how disorienting that was to me but to actually go and think about the things in your life. And and in those disorientations, God had pulled me out. I had had done the work. And man, I I just want to leave you with this about reorienting to him is when you're rooted back to him. You are securely reoriented to his presence in your life. This is where you experience a new renewal. You've put to to death your deceitful desires. You've divorced your idols. This is what the judges' cycle kept them from seeing. Over and over again, the Israelites couldn't figure it out. But this reorientation, you divorce your idols. You step back into the freedom of being with God. You hear things and, and believe and cling to things like, yeah, his mercies are new every morning. Joy does come in the morning. If you think about the biblical example, Where does this come from? Well, think about Israel. When they move into the promised land, 40 years of disorientation, and then finally God delivers them, they're reoriented to a new, a fresh look of who God is. If you think about the judges' cycle, like I said, unfortunately, at this point in history, they find themselves constantly running away from God instead of running to Him. Culture has shaped them so much that they can't see His faithfulness and His provision. As I close, there is a beautiful awakening and reorientation to communion with God, to a beautiful delight of who he is. As you're reoriented back to him, it's a fresh, a new, a fresh spirit, a fresh uh, experience of his love. You feel right-sized. God feels right-sized. It's like, yes. A season of uh, all of the disorientation. Like I, I get all of that, and God, I can, I'm reoriented to you. You're comfortable. You're confident with who God's made you to be. You know your limitations in this season. You know your margins. You know a little bit more about your own self, about your own heart, and you are walking with God. I told you earlier, the circles they get smaller doesn't mean that disorientation gets easier just means that you're learning the gospel more and more as life goes on sometimes it might be your disorientation might be shorter seasons because you know to go to jesus quicker you know how to fight the father of lies other times it might be drawn out a little bit i don't know why he does the things that he does i don't know why i have thoughts of doubt here and and skepticism there i don't know all of that stuff But in those disorienting moments, the quicker I can run to Jesus and fall on my knees and say, God, I don't know, but I trust you, the the better those reorientating seasons are for me. And that's kind of where I find myself this morning. And I, I don't know where you find yourself in this cycle. I just threw a lot at you. I spent four days on a retreat talking through this, and I gave it to you in 20 minutes, but I do think there's something here. Like, I I think there's something in the sense of we keep hitting a wall. And we look at life like this. And God is saying, no, 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 look at it like this. Like, yeah, 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 there's some disorientation. But remember, look, there's fresh awakening. Everything's good, everything's good. Oh, man, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. There's, okay, there's some disorientation. But look, the circles get smaller. The gospel gets more real. The intimacy gets stronger and stronger with the Father. You learn to hear the Spirit more and more. You're awakened quicker to turning from your idols and actually turning to Him. And so the invitation from the Father today is into this spiritual formation, if that's you, as a Christian, is learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then do as Jesus did. Father, would you be with us in our, our time of response this morning? I can say this with certainty. Every one of us is going to, are going to find ourselves in a different spot. Some of us are, have maybe never put, this is just putting words, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation It's just putting words to the cycles we see of your people and the word that you've given us. And some of us might have just heard words for the first time and they're like, yeah, I can relate to that. I feel a bit disoriented right now. I've got a lot of questions. I got more questions than I got answers, God. And some of us find us in that season. Some of us are in a season of of me and we are experiencing reorientation where you are so present with us and we feel so close with you. And we feel like as we're walking throughout our day, we can almost just hear your voice and it's beautiful, and and, and those in that season, Lord, would you give them more of that? We say often we're either coming out of, right in the middle of, or heading into some sort of suffering in our life. Those are very disorienting seasons. And so, Lord, again, if we find ourselves there, would you just draw near to those? I think I can say this, if If we're in that season, I just came out of one. It's tiring. It's a season where you beat yourself up a lot. God, you know our our things that we would have never said out loud. You know those thoughts in our hearts. And not once did you withdraw or be scared. In those seasons of disorientation, you're actually closer than you've ever been to us. You feel the things that we feel. You give us permission to be needy in those seasons, to ask hard questions to you? Why? Why are you doing this? I, it's, you seem so far. God, where are you? So God, would you meet people in their disorientation today? If they just need to sit and listen, would you whisper truth to them? If they need to take an action step, would you make that Very clear for them. Maybe the action step is to repent of something. And it's not always that. But if it is, Lord, make it clear to us. And then for those that might be here that have just never been oriented to you, their whole life might feel disoriented. Asking the questions of, are you real? Where are you in all of the mess? How could you allow that to happen? And how could my parents do this when I was a young kid? Like, whatever it is, Lord, if if there is somebody here today that has never been oriented to you, which simply means they've never been given a new heart and their eyes opened even in all of their disorientation, how much you love them. Would they experience your love in a fresh way today, a new way? And would you orient them to you through the cross, through the bloodshed and the body broken? Would you give them new life today? Whatever it is, Lord, we ask that you move and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.